Hello, and welcome back to the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. I'm Jonna Harris, and today we are going to be sharing an At the Bus Stop episode with you. But before we get into that, we want to give a special shout out to a few of our patrons that make this work possible. Thank you to Chris B., Mark G., Holly W., Alex K., Lindsay, Sarah H., Sarah F., Mandy B., Leah T., Jake D., Bethany N., Andrew C., and Mark S. Because of your faithful support, we have been able to sustain in this work. Thank you so much. And if you are someone who really resonates with this podcast or appreciates this work, we would love for you to join our Patreon community and support this so that we can sustain into the future. You can do that at the link in bio. If you're not able to tangibly give right now, it also helps us for you to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Share it with your friends. Help us get these stories out there. And thank you so much for daring to listen. Today, we are releasing a conversation between Jay and I about Monrovia Fellowship in Southern California. There is a lot of documentation in our show notes, thanks to the reporting of Julie Royce. In particular, we are going to be talking about a video that is a recording of the town hall meeting that happened most recently and a letter that came from concerned staff and leaders that went to the board there. We saw our own story from our own church that was just miles away from this church in the leadership response to the questions at the town hall and the concerns brought up in the letter. And we really wanted to shine a light on what these people are experiencing as they are trying to fight for goodness in their congregation. It is really heartbreaking. We know people who came from our church and went to Monrovia Fellowship to hopefully rebuild community and restart and find a church community that would care for them and choose goodness and integrity. And unfortunately, that is not what is happening at Monrovia Fellowship right now. So if you are someone that attends there and you're listening right now, we just want to say our hearts go out to you. And we are really hopeful that goodness and repentance and accountability can come for your congregation and that God would be honored. With that, I'm Jonna Harris, and this is At the Bus Stop by the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. The reason why we're here is because this actually is one that I've been wanting to talk about for a while because it is in my backyard. I've been following it from a distance and the recent Julie Royce articles on this particular church have got us fired up to talk about it. So we are going to talk about Monrovia Fellowship today. Monrovia Fellowship is a church that's in Monrovia, California. It's close to Pasadena for those that aren't in Southern California. Uh, to kind of think about the geography of it. It is a multi-ethnic church. It's a large church, a multi-ethnic church. It is run by a pastor by the name of Albert Tate. And for years, and I mean years, this church was one that many of us looked to from afar as like an example of, especially for those in white spaces, of what does a multi-ethnic church look like? How does it operate? Uh, it was admired, honestly. And um, we knew people that left our church when our church imploded that went to this place and as as a hope to be a fresh start uh, and, a, and a new, you know, new environment. So that church is now, as you can see, mired in controversy to say the least. I think that's putting it lightly. 
But there are been a slew of allegations against Albert and the church. Julie Royce does an outstanding job laying out what these allegations are. Um, we're going to link to her articles. But the allegations include financial mismanagement and inappropriate text messages like our buddy Maddie C. And other people <laughs> in that space and financial mismanagement and also just uh, un basically like a toxic work environment, mistreatment of staff. So today, instead of going through the allegations, we want to talk about two things. One, the leadership sent an amazing letter to the board and to Albert to try to address these things in-house. And that went, of course, how we all know it went poorly. And there was this insane town hall that happened a few weeks ago. So we want to touch on those two things. Um, so, Jana, what are your thoughts here? Where do you want to get started with this <laughs> wonderful topic? First, like Jay said, we have friends, former fellow church congregants that ended up at Monrovia Fellowship. I think a lot of us were just really hopeful that that would be a healing space for them. And I think probably it was in some ways. There, Jay and I were talking like there's so many beautiful ministries supposedly beautiful ministries that that church has been a part of or has spearheaded. And it's really unfortunate and sad that now people who went there that had already been so crushed and were struggling with so much, like such a lack of trust, uh, rightfully so, in church leadership to then have almost an identical situation happen at Monrovia Fellowship. It's just really heartbreaking for us. And I feel protective of those people. And I also feel solidarity and grief for just the staff members and the leadership over at Monrovia Fellowship, who so clearly have tried to go about this process with integrity and care and, you know, go up, go along the proper channels to bring accountability and protection and righteousness to their church and to just see the response of the leadership, the board, Albert in particular. It was really reminiscent of Jay and I's story, many of your stories, I'm sure. And it felt important, like it felt like something that we needed to say out loud, that we respect the integrity and the character of the people who have worked, it seems, tirelessly to bring about goodness in this situation. Yep. And I also, I I, I want to talk about this too, because for me, like I, the way that the leadership team in Monrovia Fellowship approached this was pretty much the same as we did, but they documented everything in a way that was amazing. And it is just their response to the response to the leadership team by the board and Albert Tate is so predictable to people like me and Jana and others who've experienced it that it's kind of like you it doesn't you don't skip a beat. You're like, oh yeah, that's how that's of course they did that. But I think for everybody else, it really does show how deep the sickness is in our church. Um and and I, I think I mentioned this on our last episode somewhere that you know we are more our witness is really for power and control in the Christian church today. That is our greatest witness. And the way Albert Tate and the board responds, I mean, it's a great indication that that's what our witness is. It's not about people. 
So, and in, in particular, our witness in the Western world in America, yes. um, and it it is like interesting. It's been fascinating to watch because. Monrovia Fellowship kind of did have a reputation, does have a reputation for being different than the SBC or Acts 29, yet it's the same thing happening. So it feels like there's different flavors and different struggles and even different character flaws that are unique to each of these spaces, like horrific racism, for instance, for the SBC. But this this power at all costs and the corruption that comes with that and the loss of integrity and the way that people are run over by these buses, it's all similar. So we felt like it was important to talk about this. And with that, that letter that they wrote, for me, reading through it and how well they did it, is just so disheartening because you read it and you look at how they documented and you say, all right, they actually did this perfectly. And I know that anxiety that they probably had to get it perfect because we did that. (laughs) We had a draft where we were like constantly, it felt like we lived and breathed this freaking letter for so long, trying to get every single word perfectly correct so that we weren't wrong in anything we were saying so that we were had integrity and truthfulness behind us and that it couldn't be taken the wrong way and then to see it just do nothing not only do nothing but to be met with disdain and it it almost seemed mocked ignored too i mean it yeah. was ignored you know they sent this letter which not only outlined the allegations and evidence of the allegations but then also kind of spoke to how they how they got there as a church. You know, they weren't they weren't trying to single out, you know, all pointed toward Albert. It really felt like, hey, as a church, how did we get here? And owning, you know, owning some of that like as a community. And then it also talked about like what health looks like. And the recommendations they make were fabulous. They're great. The board just flat out ignored them. And I think that was the thing that, you know, didn't blow me away, but was was just a profound example of where, before we get into the town hall, like where the board's head was at for me by ignoring these letters and and in some regards, you know, threatening those who sent the letters, uh, which did happen earlier in the conversation where the letter was sent and there was threatened to the staff or the leadership team, like, we're going to have to investigate if who sent these letters. You know, you're going to be investigated, which is so stupid, but it's very predictable. Yeah, it's so common and something that takes a little bit of time in looking at these situations to start to pick up on this fixation on how things are exposed rather than what's exposed it distracts from the actual need for accountability from the actual crisis that's happening or the actual sin that's being uncovered and it gets put back on whatever is shining the light on the thing so the issue isn't actually this glaring harm that is happening the the issue is the person that's showing you that the harm is there and that's really purposeful and <laughs> The very charitable side of this is that leadership teams don't know that's what they're doing and they actually subconsciously are just so anxious about what will happen if if light is shown on these spaces that they 
immediately go into protection. The realistic side of me thinks it's all purposeful. Yeah. It's all purposeful because it means lack of power. It means losing power and giving power over to others to actually investigate these situations. And that's why we're so passionate about third party investigations, which is what the staff was asking for was unbiased and accredited third party investigation. And they didn't get it. They still haven't gotten it. They still haven't gotten it. And it's the same as the village with Matt Chandler. They hired a boutique law firm to investigate themselves. Who do lawyers work for? They work for their clients. That's not an unbiased investigation for the good of the congregation or for the good of the woman on the other side of these inappropriate texts. I don't even think Monrovia went that far. Like, I don't even think they said they, I think they just were like, we looked into it. Who's we? We don't know. Well, they did say in an article that the original inappropriate text messages were from last year and that the church leadership didn't find out till this year, like, like this fall. And that the board said they hired a third party to investigate, but they never did. They never hired anybody. So they definitely didn't hire anyone. But they did hire a crisis management team that was over $100,000. And and the kicker for me was, (laughs) the kicker for me on this one was the fact that that there was a lot of jobs impacted here. Like they've had tremendous layoffs at at this church. You know, for a church, they were a large staff. And their budget went from like six and a half million. They trimmed it down to like three and a half million. And they did that mostly through layoffs. So there was a, in in the letter you can go through, there's there's definitely a lot of questions. And it looks like they've been asking a lot of questions about financial mismanagement. And the inability for the board or Albert Tate to answer those questions are like staggering. Like it's staggering. And then when you dig into it to see where some of the funds went, uh, like Julie did, some of the funds are tied to NDAs, payoffs for NDAs. You know, she uses the word hush money. It's used in there. And I think that's an appropriate word to use. But it's just it's just rotten all the way around. So I, I did want to talk about the town hall and spend our most of our time there and then talk through what we, you know, we both read the article, looked at the town hall and kind of talked through how bonkers that town hall was. But for those who've been in the space, it's so predictable. The responses from the board and Albert Tate. So there is a recording of the town hall in Julie's article. I recommend going and watching it because a lot of the things that we're talking about now will make a lot more sense when you're seeing it in real time. A lot of us, many listeners, if you have experienced a scandal or major conflict within your church congregations with church leadership. A lot of us have been to a town hall. Like that is just, it's a common thing in spaces that end up with conflict, um, significant conflict. And what was really unique about this particular town hall is that Julie Royce showed up to it. So what was really fascinating to me to watch was the spin That as an outsider, you're watching this spin happen, and it's so clear. When you're in that moment, you're so confused, though. So as a congregant, for anybody that was there that is invested emotionally, financially, relationally at Monrovia, I 
fully believe that you probably were just massively confused during that town hall. Like you're probably feeling so many feelings during that entire thing. Grief, protective, all sorts of stuff. But Julie throws a wrench in it by being there because she's an outsider that is not emotionally or relationally invested there. So she could ask the questions and didn't get sidetracked when she asked her question. She was just direct. And the response of Albert to Julie actually stood out to me a lot because I think we saw probably the side of him that the staff was trying to highlight in their letter. So they talk about this toxic environment. And actually, at one point, if you read through Julie's articles, when Albert finally was put on sabbatical, there was a requirement in that that he was not allowed to contact staff during his sabbatical. Did you see that, Jay? I didn't see that. No. And he broke it. Multiple times. And so part of what this leadership team was like crying out about is like the dude cannot follow basic boundaries. Like he is continuously breaking boundaries, even in this sabbatical time where you're now restoring him back in. He has broken boundaries. Suppose allegedly I don't have text messages from Albert Tate, but this is it seems very well documented. So we see this switch in Albert with Julie, where he gets so angry and you can hear it in his voice. You can hear it in the way he speaks. And he seems flustered, too. I think what we're seeing there is a loss of control. And it's so markedly different than when he's speaking to congregants and I just think it's like it would almost be a case study to me of watching how someone is using their spiritual authority over their congregation. And then when there's someone there that he doesn't have spiritual authority over, how much he loses it. I I do remember that because he like switched back and forth and then he dropped like a restaurant for her to try and that. You know, he appreciated her being there. He was spiraling, yeah, like full was, on spiral. I mean, sadly, like I thought that showed a lot of true colors coming through about, like, you know, about this is probably day to day, like you said, what it is day to day, what it's like to deal with him. But the other thing, too, is it felt very similar to our past former pastor and other groups that have brought where they were brought in to investigate our former pastor, like this way they switch back and forth. It's it's sickening. Honestly, it's really just sickening too. He like accused her at one point of like, sh- sh- like you're not a what do you say you're a jer- oh he lied that she lied about him. And so you you print lies about me. I think she asked him like what what were the lies? She's or like, what am I lying about? And yeah. he said the yeah. sexual harassment. Yeah. And she said, well, I didn't lie about that. I'm reporting what the allegations against you are. And then he just got flustered. Yeah, it was interesting. Goodness. I would say, too, though, like if you're in a really weird space with with churches, those videos can be super triggering. So, like, you don't spend a lot of time in in them. But if you you really want to see, like, the dysfunction of church in America today, it's a great thing to watch. And the desperation from those in the room who are just pleading for answers. And they're not like answers to complicated questions. And then the three men, again, I think this is important to mention too. The allegations are against Albert and the board, but Albert is the head pastor. Albert leads the freaking town hall. The guy who most of the allegations are against is leading the town hall, which is insane. 
So if you want to understand the dysfunction and the upside down world of the Western church right now, it is a great case study to watch because it is, it, it does give that on full display. The biggest thing I wanted to talk through on that too is how confusing situations are in that, in that setting, just by what I just said with Albert being there. If, if this is really a proper investigation and the board gives a damn, Albert not only is not in the room, I don't even know if the board is in the room at this point. It would be a qualified third party in the room really going through the concerns of the church. And it probably would be at a smaller setting than that. I don't know. Maybe not. The other thing that you'll see consistently in that town hall is their inability to answer questions. Like They keep deferring to one another to answer the question, which is so... Again, they're not complicated questions, which is such a thing of like, you know, um, not well, guilt is a great word, but just the inability to answer a question. Like if you came and asked me a question, if I didn't know the answer, I could say, hey, I don't know the answer. Let me go check with Jana. Their just inability to answer the questions to me was striking. And then they also use a very common tactic that is displayed a couple times when, you know, Albert references Matthew 18. And the other thing is they... And this comes up in a couple of the articles, the repetitive nature of saying, if you have a problem, come talk to me about it. Like in the reference, whether it be the board or Albert, which again, the allegations are against them. That's insane. And that come talk to me in a one-on-one setting. One-on-one, Which, if you remember our story at all for our church, just most of this was honestly massively triggering the voices of the congregants that were like so clearly just distressed and grieving as they're asking questions and not getting answers and the confusion. It's really heartbreaking to listen to and relatable for us. But in our own story, Pastor H really honed in on this idea of one-on-one meetings to the point that no ministry was really, I don't think any group of people was addressed until it was towards the end of our situation. It was all one-off meetings that he would have. So every single meeting, people were told different things depending on the person that was going to Pastor H. It was a web of confusion surrounding any questions anyone had, whether it be about me being fired, whether it be about finances, whether it be about whispers of the staff claiming that there's abusive and toxic leadership happening. Like all of these things had 30 different spiderweb trails coming off of them for what's actually happening because Pastor H in these one-on-ones is spinning a different story to tickle the ears of whoever is talking to him. Or Pastor H is just telling people to leave if (laughs) if they're pushing back too much. And so when you start seeing Albert say, I'll talk to you one-on-one, It's hard for Jay and I not to say, that's not safe. Please do not do that. Take a witness always. Congregation-wide allegations, there should not be a need for one-on-one addressing of them to congregants. This should be, this is a public thing now, and it should be addressed in a public way. And I can't see any valid reason or good reason for him to be asking congregants with questions to not ask them publicly and to allow him to control the narrative behind the scenes. And how do you meet one-on-one 
with the church at the time, you know, I think they're down to 500. They were at a thousand. So they're, they're, um, their attendance is down, but how do you meet with 500 people individually? Like he can't do that. It's impossible. So one of the things that, that was brought up that I found interesting uh, in the town hall, and this is in Julie's article that she references is that, so essentially there was, there was a budget of like six and a half million. It, it got down to three and a half million. There's been tons of layoffs at this church. Again, this is a bigger church with a bigger staff, but it's been a lot of layoffs. A lot of people have lost their, their, their job. And, you know, they somebody asked Albert like, "Hey, what what's attributed to uh, you know the problems at the church?" And Albert like you know he went to he said COVID. Everybody they man COVID in these churches, stress, and this was the big one, right? This is the one that if you this should be red flags for all of us. Staff inappropriately taking things outside the building whatever the hell that means, right, to him. But essentially it's talking outside of the four walls. You know, they'll, they'll probably later throw gossip on that. I'm sure they did uh, somewhere. But taking that out, meaning that whatever they're doing in there, you know, other people, it's no, nobody else's business. Now, again, that to me is a red flag that, why would you ever say that? Like, if you're doing stuff in the four walls that is concerning I mean, of course people are going to talk about it. Yeah. People that don't have something to hide don't care if care. co-workers yes. go out for drinks after work and talk. Like, it's not a threat. And that's also like a control thing, too, like controlling the narrative, always being there. So then he goes on and says, unfortunately, some of the staff began to take internal conversations and even listed names and content and began to put pieces out in the public. So you have these fragments and and he, he essentially said this decreased giving, which ultimately resulted in layoffs. But again, if churches have nothing to hide, this isn't happening. Like you don't have this type of mass exodus of people, you know, if it's like common gossip going on outside the, you know, outside the church walls about the color of the carpet or something like that. And that is so purposeful and you can get lost in what you even just said there, you can lose that what he did there was take all responsibility off of his actions and place it all back on the staff that are raising the flags and saying, hey, we're concerned. This is concerning. Hey, it's been nine months since it was exposed that there's been inappropriate text messaging and he's still up on stage preaching every week and no one's doing anything. But it's not his fault for sending the text messages. It's not his fault for mismanaging finances. It's not his fault for any of these corrupt things that are happening. It's just it's the staff's fault for saying it out loud. And that's why. So therefore, eat each other alive. It's your own fault. If you're one of the people that got laid off, you can tell you can go to your coworker and you can blame them. It's not my fault. And then another board member was talking about like the infrastructure, essentially not enough, uh, insufficient was the term he used, that there was like one level of leadership, which was essentially Albert and the board that made all the decisions. And they emphasized that the infrastructure wasn't strong enough and that the essentially the system was so big. But what's ironic about that is that in the letter that was sent prior to the town hall, which was the interim leadership team that sent this from fellowship, I mean, they outlined like verbatim how to correct that issue. 
And it was great, like what they did. But the inability for the board to read that letter and be like, yeah, those are good points. And then for a board member to say, oh, the infrastructure is too big, but I'm going to ignore your letter you sent me that said, yes, the infrastructure is too big. Here's how to fix it. It just blows me away. They also mentioned, John, I don't know if you saw this, there's five board members, two of them were there, and that evidently like no one knew who was on the board. It's kind of like a guessing game, and two of the board members who were there were sc- full of scandals as well. Like They had prior scandals. So it Such sounds a like mess. a and it's meeting like, of the minds. <laughs> well, and we're seeing that structure popping up in Acts 29 churches and churches like Trinity. That was That's Driscoll's model, is this board that is just for him and him alone. And it's not actually like a part of the congregation. A lot of the times it's just like randoms <laughs> that don't aren't even there, like in the building with people seeing what's happening. It's all bizarre. So uh, when they referenced Julie said in the article, uh, when they referenced Matthew 18, I think it was Albert who did it. Someone shouted out, we did like he tried to spell out the steps and they referenced somebody shouted in the audience. We did because they did. I mean, that article, you could tell like they were they were taking the appropriate steps. Something else that Albert said, John, I want to get your take on it, was when they started talking about like basically he said he didn't abuse staff. And, this, you know, I'm not quoting him here, but essentially that the staff were not abused. And then he referenced something like people were just frustrated. They didn't like what Albert was saying to them which is so familiar to me, especially in your story. Like, you know, and I heard that a lot too. Like when you got mm-hmm. fired and I talked to I Pastor was just disgruntled. H. Yeah, like you just didn't like the responses he was giving you. But again, that is a huge red flag. Again, this is the guy who the allegations are against and he is giving you the answers. He is. And the board is allowing him. Yeah. I mean, it's so clear. It was so clear in our situation, too. If we were to pay an outside person to investigate what happened at our church or Monrovia, we would have been handing them a wild amount of money to spend three minutes saying, yep, (laughs) it's so obvious what is happening. And what's so sad is, like in Monrovia Fellowship, like in our church's situation, It is so evident that people did try to go about it with Matthew 18. Like they try, like there is the one on ones, there is the two or more, there is, and multiple times there are these meetings happening, yet it's never enough or it's never done the correct way. And these moving goalposts are purposeful. You move the goalposts forever. And what do you think about like the two allegations that really stuck out to me were the money mismanagement, where they were hush hush money or supposed hush money being paid to those who signed NDAs. And then it's sexual harassment too. The men who are accused of both of those things are basically giving you an answer to why they aren't true, right? That like, where in the hell does that happen anywhere in the world where that is okay? Like, why are we excusing that type of behavior? Sexual harassment is a huge thing. Why are we allowing the man who is accused of sexual harassment the ability to answer that in front of a public on like a some sort of like podium or stand of something? I mean, he's elevated up in the video, right? Like he's still speaking from a place of authority. Mm -hmm. 
the thing that I thought Julie did a really good job of in her article is she quoted someone talking about, or maybe it was her herself saying it, that sexual harassment can be, it's a spectrum of things. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the worst thing that our minds go to when you hear sexual harassment. It could be a lot of things. And regardless of what those things are, it's still a major issue if that's happening from a boss, from anyone, but especially a pastor to staff members. And that's also a really hard thing to make an allegation about. I don't even have words. I I read that and I read the response of the board and the HR person during the town hall meeting, if you watch it, they ask, do you trust her? And someone yells out, no. And then that person gets reprimanded for saying they don't trust her. Yeah, it's horrible. Clearly, there are HR issues happening here. Like, clearly, if this many people are resigning, this many people are being laid off. There are serious allegations on the table. No one is really effectively looking into them or providing answers. And then they're like, but trust us. And then if you don't trust us, you're a terrible person. This person that you just said you don't trust has proven character over all this time. And now you're you're a bad person for saying no. Yeah, it is a circus. It's a complete circus. Well, in the trust us argument, like just trust me, like if you say that as a as a pastor, I mean that to me with Matthew eighteen, you know that needs to go out of a pastor's uh, playbook as well because when you're faced with these many allegations, the last thing that you want to say to anyone is, oh, you just need to trust me. No, you want to open the book and allow the investigation to be completed so that people can be made whole, like. The whole thing that boils in my gut about this is, and you, trust me, I am talking from experience here, you are ruining people's faith with God, with the church, that may never be salvaged on this side of heaven. It just may never be. And the arrogance of these men and other men and women to... Look the other way on that blows me away. And why? And why? For what? Money, power, power. fame. He did a sermon series. This is why I didn't go to his church. He did start doing a sermon series on his book. He was preaching from his book. Which is literally Mark Driscoll. Yeah. 2.0. Like it's the same playbook. Power, money, fame. I, but here's what I don't understand. Unless the board is getting paid like an absorbent amount of money, like is it a money train for them as well? Because they're losing money. Like, why would you want to be next? Why wouldn't you just fire this guy? Why would you say we're going to fire him? Like they're the losing all of that. Of the century for all of these situations. Why? It's because the structures. I think it's a lot of things. Actually, there's fear. There's proximity to power. Yeah. When these institutions are built around a person, then if that person is leaving, they could think the whole thing's going to crumble. And what I wish leaders in these organizations and churches would understand is it is better for it to crumble than to be led by someone that is toxic and unhealthy and doing these things in the name of God. 
Yeah. There are not words for how deep that harm goes and how broken people are leaving spaces like this and how much it rocks the very definition of who God is for a lot of people because we're told by people we trust this is of God and it's abuse. It's, it's abuse. It doesn't. I I don't have other answers. I, it it's all power, and it I it's sad. It's sad, and to me, that's not what are we doing? Like what what are we doing? There's a point again, and and Julia does an outstanding job, but she references. I'm not going to name the person. It's in her article, but it's basically it's somebody there, congregate, who says essentially like, hey, to the board, like our trust has been broken. We deserve. We deserve an invest unbiased, non-biased investigation. Part third party to come in and do an investigation, and the, one of the board members who I will name, his last name is Washington. He's like, "Do you speak for the congregation?" And like, I'm like, "Dude, like." Well, and then it sounds like a resounding yes happens, and then there's like some sparse spe- nose in there, and, he, and he's all, "I hear some nose." <laughs> There's can I find one no in this room so that I don't have to have an investigation? I mean, man, and that's to me is I think about this gentleman who spoke up, like, and I don't know his history at the church, but that is he was there, so he he has and you know a vested interest in this congregation. The ability to just look at a person, and I can speak from experience because this happened to me with Pastor H. And just basically feel like you just get a big middle finger. Like that's really what it feels like. And the way that that comes across, especially from someone that you would call a brother or sister in Christ and someone that is at the time for me, especially was a spiritual authority, I thought it's just so discombobulating to your soul, to your spirit. It's depleting. It's Um, crazy making. And I think people, if you've listened for any amount of time to the podcast, you'll hear storytellers discuss how they felt confused and crazy or am I making this up? Like you don't under your brain literally cannot compute what is happening because you're sitting there saying these are serious allegations. It makes you feel like I'm, you're missing something. And to feel frustrated and upset, I, at least me, I go internal, like, am I being dramatic? Yes. Am, yeah. am I off? Like, should I not care about this as much as I do? Am I just making this a bigger thing than it actually is? No, that is a big deal. The allegations that are well documented in this situation are a big deal, yet from the stage it's being treated like uh you know he sent a he probably just it was probably just some coarse joking (laughs) coarse joking yeah (laughs) yeah yeah oh my gosh i mean the money thing too like they have this whole thing where they try to talk to them about the ndas and paying money to the ndas and like he defers to one of the board members the board member defers back to him he answers it then he's like i wasn't answering the question it's it's just like confusing, but it's also misdirection on purpose. He uses a term a couple times about we have a problem, like come reason with him, like we'll reason together, which again is the the man, this is Albert Tate, uses that is the man that the allegations of abuse are against. And he's saying, Yeah, come talk to me about it. Let's reason together, which is such a it's such a 
horrible thing to say in that setting. And I could only think that the people, if you, if you were in that room and he said that, and you have a personal story where you've been mistreated, abused, what have you, just know that that is not Jesus in any way. And that man is speaking from a place of, I'm going to use a biblical term here, true hardened sin, honestly. And you don't deserve that. 100% you don't deserve that. You deserve a leader who will humbly come to you, apologize, and say, how can I make this right? What do you need from me? And if it's for me to go away and never talk to you again, deal, right? Like, what can I do to help make you whole? So good. So good. You don't owe it to your pastor to sit down and reason through. I I still, that whole term just mystified me. I was like, what is there to reason with? There is, this is the allegation. Here's the, the documentation of it. What are you doing with it? Like, what what is the reasoning that we're doing here? Like, it's really sad. And honestly, I know, I know there are people that think Jay and I just revel in this or want pastors to fall or want churches to implode. And that is so far from the truth. And I think if you've listened long enough and heard our hearts long enough, you know that. But to be clear... This is not what Jay and I want. And our hope is that churches will start to walk the narrow way that Jesus lays out and love others, love each other, lead with love. And anybody who watches that town hall, if that is our one thing that we judge the entire interaction on, that love is completely lacking from that entire interaction. And if there's any red flag that we need beyond the countless hours of documentation that so many selfless congregants and leadership team members put together, there is no love. The only place I see love in this entire situation is outpouring from the people that are that are truly calling for goodness and the way that these sweet human beings spoke on the microphone, oozed love. But that is not what they got in return. And I hope that over time and over healing that they're able to to separate that out and see that that's not love so that they can they can heal and learn to be cared for and hopefully experience love from pastors one day. And I agree too. Like I read the letter that the leadership team put together and I, I was grieved by it because one, I've been there. I've helped put those letters together from our former church. And two, you know, you look at Monrovia Fellowship on the outside and, and you look at their website and some of the things they do. And and you would think you go, man, like if there was a church that you wanted to be right, you wanted this church to be right in a lot of ways. And what I mean by right is not like, being perfect, I mean like living out the gospel in a community, living it out together in different spaces. You wanted it to be what it was on a website. And you realize that it isn't. It just breaks your heart because it pulls down another wall and makes you ask the question, where are we safe? And we continue to pull these walls down and we continue to have men 
stand up and take zero accountability and then press on as leaders holding their Bible in their hands, writing their books. And in doing that, it erodes the fabric of what I feel like Christianity is in this country and in our society. And we're left isolated, broken, on the outside looking in, wondering what the hell are we supposed to do? And that's when I read that letter, like I broke my heart. But it also encouraged me in the sense of saying that, and I always say this with all of our our storytellers, there are people not in power that desire to live out the church in the way that I think Christ envisioned us to do. And we have got to start talking about how do we do that more realistically in our communities, because our hope is not in Monrovia Fellowship. It's not in Acts 29. It is not in Matt Chandler, Albert Tate, or the SBC. It is in, well, it's really in Christ, but it's in living that life together independently of these big institutions. At least that's what I believe. Just this last week in therapy, the therapist was like, so oftentimes when people experience the type of stuff that you've experienced, it really rocks their entire foundations of their faith. And they feel like they can't believe in God anymore. Where are you at with God? And I was telling her, I am constantly confused that I still believe in Jesus. (laughs) I'm like constantly confused by that. But the only explanation I have for it is this supernatural integrity that I see in people faced with just bonkers, bonkers leadership that in the name of God is abusing human beings, image bearers. And there are people that stand up at the expense of themselves and they say this isn't right and this isn't Jesus. And I can't explain how much hope that gives me as a someone who believes in Jesus to see someone else care enough and to take seriously enough their belief in in Jesus to hold their leadership accountable and to say this is wrong and to stand up for the least of these and to step in when they're seeing oppression or they're seeing marginalized voices being harmed it's not the gospel what we're watching happen but we get to see the gospel lived out in those moments. And that is what's giving us hope. I want to end with this because I thought this was whoever this person was, you're, you totally rock. The article concludes with it. Tate at one point in the meeting for coming back from his leave of absence, which came back quicker than he was supposed to. He said, unfortunately, I feel like this is still my church. And this prompted pushback from the, the audience that it's our church. And, Tate said, oh, it's still our church. I apologize. I say it's our church all the time. Come on, which whatever. Um, but, you know, whoever said that it is your church, Monrovia Fellowship, and um, it's not his church. It's not the board's church. Uh, ultimately, it is Christ's church. And you were fighting the good fight and you were doing what's right to try to hold these men accountable. And for the three men there in the town hall and others that are choosing not to listen, that is on you. You know, I'm not one who believes in crazy spiritual consequences anymore like I used to, but I will tell you that by refusing to listen to the pleas of those who are asking for justice and turning your heart away from that, 
that impact will stay with you for your life unless you get rid of it and you reconcile with those. And for those that are in that place that don't have reconciliation and hurt right now, Christ is in that moment with you. And I know that's like a Christian thing to say, but I've seen it time and time again with our storytellers that Christ lives in those moments. It is not an easy moment, but in that moment, there is beauty because you are standing up for what is right and you are standing up for the gospel.